you know, that's one thing Bashir does well. He conveys emotion. Why? Because he's most likely a psychopath who's able to fake his emotions very well. But most of these politicians are so caught up with being prim and proper, they're afraid to bring passion. And welcome, everybody, to the Andrew Kubrider Show. Of course, I'm your host, Andrew Kubrider. Thanks for tuning in. Got some great stories for you here to go over on Friday. Obviously, we've all been seeing the news, or I hope you have, about Mitch McConnell freezing up on national TV. We're going to talk about, uh, we'll cover that real quick. And then we'll also go over uh, what happens if Mitch McConnell uh, doesn't make it to 2026 when he is up for re-election. We'll also cover the the media and Bashir are digging in deep on this. Uh, well, we're not actually against uh, underage gender surgery, something we covered in detail, how he really is in an episode earlier this week called The Courier Journal is a part of the Bashir campaign and you can check that out, but we're going to talk about what Cameron campaign should do next. What should be their tech? How does Cameron pull this out? Uh, finally, speaking of Cameron at the farm bureau forum, he had brought back up his Medicaid work requirement for able-bodied adults in order to receive Medicaid. We're going to discuss what is that policy? What's it mean? and go into deeper discussion about that. We'll have all that and more today on the Andrew Cooperwriter Show. But first, I want to remind you, please like, comment, share, subscribe, follow the page if you're listening on Facebook, follow the page if, if you're watching on Twitter or X, whatever it's called now. Um, you know, if, if you're listening on YouTube, make sure you subscribe. And as always, this is available in a podcast-only format, audio format on Apple and, and Spotify and Amazon and iHeart and everywhere where you listen to podcasts, you can find this here. And if you're listening on one of those podcast forms, please, at the end of this episode, remember to leave a review. It helps us out. I appreciate you all for tuning in, and let's dig down into it. Before I talk about the Mitch McConnell story, though, remember when I said and more. There is an Ann Moore story I want to talk about real quick. And this isn't major news, and it definitely isn't deserving of its own segment. But recently, the city of Lexington had passed an ordinance charging Airbnbs for licensing and an attempt to restrict what areas they can be licensed in uh, to ensure that they're in, uh, I guess, the correct areas so people don't have to deal with Airbnb uh, people and also to uh, kind of start to regulate Airbnbs as people have cried out over housing costs. But one of the things that they're requiring, part of this is you get a special license to have an Airbnb. And that is $200 a year per property and $100 a year per additional property that you add on. And well, initially that doesn't, maybe it sounds like a lot, maybe it doesn't. I mean, personally, I think any of these taxations just pushes the cost onto somebody else. Um, obviously, the Airbnb person isn't going to pay for it. But also, too, as well, with that additional increase of expense, you got to ask, does it drive tourism away from Lexington? Because maybe it was a cheaper place for people to stay. These are all considerations. But that's not what I want to discuss. I don't want to discuss the actual law itself. I want to discuss what they said they are going to spend the muse money on. What they... <laughs> But they said in the article, they're spending this $200 per property, $100 per additional property on software to help manage the license people. 
That's what they specifically said, that the money is for software. And I have to ask you, does this software turn everything it touches into gold? Why is it worth? That is so much money. So so let, let's, if there's 500 Airbnbs in Lexington, or let's say there's even less, let's say there's a hundred Airbnb uh, owners in Lexington with at least one property. That's probably pretty low, but let's say there is a hundred at $200 a pop. That is $200,000, $200,000 a year for software to manage a thousand owners. That is crazy. You know, software should cost $200 per licensee to manage for the government. It's clearly a gigantic money grab. Clearly money's going to go elsewhere, but I just want to bring that up because I thought that was ridiculous. But anyways, Mitch McConnell uh, had a issue on Wednesday uh, where it appears he had a medical emergency on screen. We're going to play that for you so you can listen or watch. Uh, just to kind of remind you about that. After finishing the NDA uh, this week, it's been good bipartisan cooperation and a string of So this is the, uh, we're coming up on the one year anniversary of the IRA. And um, of course. Uh, All right. So there you have it. He was in the middle of a talk. Um, and he appeared towards the end to kind of start to trail off. And then he looks off to the right side and falls silent and still. And then as he's shuffled off stage, to me, uh, it certainly looked like he realized he's either having a heart attack or he was having a mini stroke there on stage. And I greatly dislike Mitch McConnell. I think he's pretty uh, self-serving in that way. I think his entire political career has been about forwarding his own ability to hold power. Sometimes, sometimes that benefited us in a certain way, such as, um, you know, pushing and paying for Kentucky to be flipped red or court appointees. People point to the court appointees because, of course, he wanted to be able to have his say on some of these courts. And so holding up uh, that appointment till Trump could get into office so Trump could get as many Supreme Court appointees as he did, as well as several other court appointees along the way, they point to as these great successes. And while I hear you there, one of the hallmarks, I believe, of Mitch McConnell is if if I don't hold the power, I don't want any Republicans to hold the power. And I have seen him specifically work against uh, Republicans that he just didn't like, even in generals. You know, the party really exists on this idea that when you get to the general, if you've got our next year name, we've got to support you. But that is actually a, a rule that they push upon the 
I don't want to call them the outsiders, but that's a rule the party pushes upon people who aren't the Mitch McConnell type establishments because they're the first to abandon that rule. They will vote Democrat more often than some of the greatest conservatives that complain about Republicans uh, out loud do. And that's just who they are. And that is who Mitch McConnell is. And we've seen this time and time again. And there's tons of examples of this. But additionally, as well, he's got this belief uh, where, where it comes to just holding on to power for himself personally. He makes decisions not based upon principles, but based upon uh, the quote unquote long game or what. And he actually wrote a book called The Long Game and, and what can serve him what he believes is the best in the long run. And a great exam, example of that here recently would be the greatest greatest the the largest piece of gun control legislation we've seen passed in recent history um the the safer communities act and he pushed that forward because he crumpled i, I mean this is just plain straight it he it was an electoral thing he doesn't care one way or another about guns he doesn't care if we have guns or don't have guns what he cares about is winning the next election and he believed that if he showed Republicans could be soft on gun control or softer or common sense gun control, opening up the door for these far left crazy people, he believed, hey, if I could do that, then uh, maybe it helps us win in these upcoming elections. And of course, didn't deliver for the Senate because the argument back would be, and this is a prevailing argument that I wish some of these establishment types would bother to listen to, is that you have to inspire your base and bring them out. And they're asking themselves constantly. Why should I vote for you? What are you going to do for me? Inspire me. Make me turn out to vote. See, that's one of the things Trump's, Trump has done for the Republican Party. When Trump is on the ticket, he turns people out. He turns out people who won't vote for anybody else. Why? Because his, he is an inspiring person to vote for. And providing inspiring candidates for people to vote for is so key. But instead, we hear a lot of people arguing that we need more lukewarm, lackluster, whatever, Republicans running in order to win elections because, well, it, it appeals better to the moderates. Look, you're going to lose your base along the way, though. And it's the same thing with Democrats. They're not worried about being moderate. Name me one moderate Democrat. Name me one. You can't. You can't name me a Democrat. Maybe, maybe Manchin out of West Virginia, you might consider a moderate, but even he's got some extreme leanings. I mean, people want to point to candidate quality and point out people like Dr. Oz or point out um, other people in, in, in other states in the Senate that couldn't get the job done, quote unquote. Meanwhile, meanwhile, you look at the Democrats, they want a congressional race with a dead person. And John Fetterman, who literally is a vegetable, won his race. You can't talk to me about candidate quality when the Democrats are more than able to pull it off with literally vegetables. It's not about candidate quality. It's about the fact that you're not putting forward candidates that are inspiring. At least that's my opinion. But that's not something McConnell believes. And that's not the way he acts either. Everything's about how do we get to what he thinks is the middle. But the problem is if the left keeps marching, well, the middle keeps moving farther left, which means we all end up getting pushed farther left unless we push back. But my issues with McConnell to the side. I don't want to see a man... Uh, be hurt or injured or be in poor health. But the fact of the matter is he shouldn't be in office anymore. I have a general rule. My wife will tell you, and, and you know, we've been to probably two to 300 political dinners at this point in our lives. And I have a general rule 
that if I look at a politician and I get nervous when you walk, I really don't want to vote for you again. It's just a general rule. I know you could be a really great person and everything else, and you could be a really good legislator, but we got to really start to think about it. I think that's just a general good rule we should all maybe adopt. When we see you walking, if we feel nervous for you, because we know a good falls just going to really take you out, well, maybe you should think about retiring. That's when we should be pushing you to. In fact, Mitch McConnell had a spill recently. And what was funny is I saw him at a political dinner. And and actually, I saw him at two political events um, just like a few days prior. And one of them was a kind of a private event that he was at and I was at too as well. And we spoke briefly. And then another event, he was speaking publicly in front of people. And at the event where he was speaking publicly in front of people, he climbed up these steps. And I turned to my wife and I go, or I think I texted her. I think my wife was outside the door doing something. And I texted her saying, man, I am nervous watching him climb those stairs. I'm worried about him falling. And then within a week he falls and it's a, it's a major problem. And I think that's really when a trip and fall can take out uh, a politician, we need to start thinking about who's running our country. I think that's just a good general thought process to have. I'm not even going to say it's a specific age. People hit that point where I feel nervous about them walking at all kinds of different ages. But Mitch McConnell should definitely step down because if he doesn't step down or, or is he biding his time? See, Mitch McConnell's health has been long speculated to be bad. That is why uh, two years ago, our legislature changed how the governor replaces a sender. Before that law change, the governor could replace whomever they wanted with replace a senator with whomever they wanted until the next election for that position. So the person would fulfill the rest of that term. Well, it was changed two years ago to where the party of the person that was senator, um, the party of the person who was senator that passed away or stepped down or retired or what have you, uh, they get to put forward three options for then the governor to pick from to fulfill that seat for the remainder of the term. And they did this one because they were clearly slightly worried about Mitch McConnell and him going down. And then that way they didn't have to worry about Bashir uh, if he went down while Bashir was in office over the next two years or if Bashir wins re-election. They don't have to worry about him having to hold on until 2026. He could step down early, and then there's some control of it. And I tell you this, if if Mitch McConnell isn't in power, if they're not in the majority and he doesn't think they're going to be in the majority, Mitch McConnell, I almost bet, dollars to donuts, will step down before 2026, and that way he can be a part of the process and handpicking his uh, successor. They do not want that to go to an open seat primary. They do not want that. The last thing the McConnell type people, the establishment type people want is open primaries. They love closed primaries or, or not open seat primaries. They love a party process primary or they love to just appoint a person to create an incumbency effect one, two, three years later because it's harder to beat an incumbent and it means they have more control over who's going to be in that seat. And it's the most McConnell thing in the world to control who's going to be in that seat. So if Mitch McConnell goes down, well, then right now the party picks three people and then the governor picks 
between those three people. Though I'm sure if McConnell went down, that law would be challenged in court. We have no idea if it's constitutional or not. And so I think McConnell might be trying to hold on in hopes that Daniel Cameron wins. And this was the question we should have been asking ourselves during the primary process regarding the governor. Who do you want appointing Mitch McConnell's successor? Because that is who is most likely, that is what most likely will end up happening to them. In fact, during a debate or forum of some sort, Cameron was asked that, will you commit to, to not running for senator while in the governor's office? Or will you commit to not appointing yourself? Because the governor could do that if they're picked by the party yourself to that senator seat. And Daniel Cameron wouldn't answer the question. But make no mistake, I believe Bashir would definitely appoint himself too, especially if it was towards the end of his term. I, I have no doubt about it. And so that is how, if McConnell goes down, he would be replaced. Does he run again in 2026? You know, you might see him doing that. You might see him looking at the writing on the wall saying, look, I'm too old. My goose is kind of cooked. I've horrible approval approval ratings. My own party has now censured me several times in different county parties. This is just not what I feel like dealing with. Everybody knows who I am and it just, everybody hates me. Um, that may be a decision he makes or he may stay in if he thinks he's going to remain the majority leader. But if he isn't going to run again, I wouldn't be surprised if you see him step down in 2024 or 2025, especially if we have a Republican governor. So that way he can pick his replacement. But as I said, it's the most McConnell thing in the world to do. Coming up after this, we're going to be discussing what Cameron needs to do or what I think he needs to do in order to really start to bring this election a lot closer. We'll have all that after this. Recently, we've been seeing a lot of articles and Bashir, of course, himself really pushing back against this Bash uh, Cameron attacks on Bashir regarding these transgender surgeries. And I, I covered this in that Courier Journal article, how they're being very disingenuous. Bashir clearly supported the surgeries. He said nothing about it, mums the word about it the entire time until Cameron starts hitting him. And now he says, no, 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 no. I'm for giving hormones and puberty blockers to kids, but I'm not for the surgeries. Now, I never said that at the time, never said in my veto message. I didn't line item veto, nothing. I never said this ever before, but now that I'm being attacked for it, I now suddenly have this opinion. And why? Because as I said, he knows it pulls back. But in this process, he is certainly giving Cameron a favor if they have the wherewithal to go after him. And the general population, when you look at all of America, general population, only... 35% of Americans in the general population are okay with giving children under 18 any kind of hormones or puberty blockers. And an even lower percentage than that in the general population, around 20%, are, is okay with giving hormones and, and puberty blockers to children under the age of 13. Now, that is not, see, see, they can't defend that practice because as I covered in yesterday's episode, we see fourth graders going by they, them pronouns, calling themselves transgender. And those children, well, if you believe in gender affirming care, which is what they do, 
Bashir believes that that child needs to be given hormones and puberty blockers. But of the general population, only 20% agree with him. That isn't in Kentucky. That is in America. Move into Kentucky. What percentage do you think it is? What percentage of citizens? If 20% is entire America, including the very far left liberal areas like California and New York, you get into rural Kentucky. What do you think the chances are that it's over 10% that agree with giving children puberty blockers and hormones? It's low. I guarantee you it's low. And in all these attacks, Bashir's making it very clear that he supports giving those to children, giving, giving that type of medication to children. This is where Cameron needs to come in and really hammer Bashir. As I said in the last segment, Republicans want to be inspired. The number one question I get asked is what would be so different between a Bashir administration and a Cameron administration? See, understand how elections work. It's about making it, one, easy to vote for you, two, hard to vote for your opponent, and three, at the same time, you've got to make a case when you're dealing with an incumbent about why you're a better choice. And we really haven't seen Cameron make a compelling case on why he would be a better choice. We haven't seen a whole lot of compelling compelling policy coming out. We do have some policy. He talked about the Farm Bureau Forum, which, by the way, Andy Bashir didn't show up to. That's what he thinks of rural Kentucky. Andy Bashir doesn't even have the time to bother himself with showing up to the Kentucky Farm Bureau Forum because Bashir doesn't care about actual rural Kentuckians. He cares about photo ops and a chance to put his name on a big old check and say, hey, I'm helping you. Remember, keep giving me power. He doesn't care to actually answer their questions, but Cameron did show up. And came and reiterated some policy we're going to talk about here in a second. But that's the number one thing I'm asked. What is the real difference here? I don't think Cameron's really specified what makes him so much different than Bashir. Why will he be a better choice to your general population? There's people like me who know what Bashir did. They've dealt with Bashir personally. They know what a horrible person he is. But to your average citizen, they're looking at the devil they know versus the devil they don't know. And they're looking to be inspired to vote for somebody else, to not vote for the person they know. It's the same with the Republican base. They're being asked to be inspired. They want to feel like they need to turn out and vote for Cameron. And right now he hasn't delivered it. And I feel that they really haven't done a good job of attacking Bashir and the way he needs to be attacked. We need cutting imagery about the church shutdowns. We need cutting remarks about how he believes about abortion right up until birth. We need cutting remarks, hard ads about how far left he is. We need to put him on the record. He's on the record now about supporting uh, hormones and puberty blockers. He's already on the record, but now we've got him five, 10 times over in 20 different articles saying that he's for those puberty blockers and hormones, hit them with it. Hit them hard and strong. Those are the things that are driving people away from it. And at the same time, be inspiring. Talk about what's happening with our kids and don't just give platitudes about it. 
get emotional about it. See, that, that's the one thing I see with a lot of these uh, politicians. It's very hard for them to see emotion in a lot of them. You know, that's one thing Bashir does well. He conveys emotion. Why? Because he's most likely a psychopath who's able to fake his emotions very well. But most of these politicians are so caught up with being prim and proper, they're afraid to bring passion. That is one thing Trump always brought. He didn't have to yell at you. Yelling wasn't his passion. But he spoke to people, and you knew you were hearing what he really thought. That's what people want to see. That's what I'd push the Cameron campaign to do. Start delivering, give people the real, not this fuzzy, warm, political ad. Give us a Cameron that shows, I will fight for you. I will fight for your values. I know my actions. See, this is the thing. Cameron's got actions to back up those words. He's been in court fighting on abortion claims. He's been in court with Bashir on the COVID actions. He's been in court on a lot of these issues. He's been in court defending Senate Bill 150, a bill to ban gender surgeries and, and giving these uh, hormones and puberty blockers to kids. He is on the record. His actions speak for himself. Now he's got to really bring it out. He's got to really deliver some real passionate, fiery talk, something that, that really can capture the masses. Well, coming up after this, uh, speaking of Cameron talking about things, he, he talked about a policy at the Kentucky Farm Bureau Forum regarding uh, work requirements when it comes to Medicaid. And we'll be talking about that after this. Cameron, recently at the Farm Bureau Governor Forum, talked about Medicaid work requirements. So this was a policy. So rewind <laughs> to Daddy Bashir. Daddy Bashir took away or opened up Medicaid to working, uh, uh, unworking, able-bodied people. So, so follow me here. If you are, the idea here is, is Medicaid is an offering to people, not Medicare. That's for retirees. Medicaid is an offering to people who are either not making a certain level of income or are not working, so they have health care and health coverage. And Steve Bashir opened that up to able-bodied adults to be able to make claims on it without any work requirements. Well, under Bevan, Bevan tried to attach a work requirement to it. And I'm going to tell you why here in a second. Then that went to courts to be argued about whether that was uh, illegal or not. Before that case was settled, Bashir won governor, uh, Andy Bashir won governor, Steve's son, and of course repealed Bevin's actions. And when he repealed it, he said, well, it's, it was a moral faith-driven action. That's what he said exactly. He said it was a moral and faith-driven action. And then, of course, he's repeatedly said health care is a human right. We'll return to whether it's moral and faith-driven to give able-bodied adults health care without any work requirement here in a bit. But before we get to that, let's talk about why this was put in place in the first place. See, Kentucky is absolutely abysmal in workforce participation rate. Only about 55% of able-bodied adults work in Kentucky. Uh, that's a large chunk of people not seeking to find jobs, and that's holding us back for a few reasons. One, it means that those who are working and developing an income, uh, only 55% of able-bodied adults are therefore having to fund our entire government 
themselves at the state and local and of course, technically federal levels too, but the state and local levels, it means that this 55% of Kentuckians who actually work that are able to are the ones funding it. And so when the state's looking at it and they're saying we don't have enough money, which I don't believe the state doesn't have enough money. Don't, don't think I buy into that BS for a second, but what that you could be saying is, well, we could lower taxes if it wasn't for the fact that Johnny over here has to pay for old Steve over here who doesn't have to, doesn't want to work's healthcare. Not that he can't work, but doesn't want to work's healthcare. So we could lower the tax burden. Well, at the same time, increasing uh, revenues, quote unquote, GDP into the state, but then be collecting their sales tax and, and other taxes off of. Because if you have a workforce that's available and wants to work, well, that means you can expand, it can attract in businesses. But as I stated, it will increase the overall tax revenues for the states, counties, and cities. And so we have a real workforce participation problem. And so a lot of people ask themselves, well, why, how can these people just not work? And a lot of it has to do with they get their basic needs and services taken care of on our dime. And it gets to a point where we just can't afford it. On top of that, you're hindering and causing shutdowns of other things like small mom and pop businesses because the lack of labor on the workforce is driving up wages to where everything's more expensive and that drives inflation. So they ask themselves, how do we get these people to work? And one of the ways that uh, Republican governors, clearly Bevan and now Cameron, have thought of doing this is to go ahead and make it a requirement that if you want to be on Medicaid and you're able body, you have to get back to work. Now, of course, Bashir's not having this. He doesn't really articulate a good reason outside of its moral and faith driven to do so. And healthcare is a human right. But let's talk about that. First off, healthcare is not a human right. It is impossible. I'm going to say that again. Healthcare is not a human right. It is impossible for something you receive from another human to be a right. We got rid of slavery a long time ago in this country. When we say that something you receive from someone else is a right, that means you are owed their labor. That is wrong and that is immoral. So no, healthcare is not a human right putting that to the side. Is it moral or faith-driven? Also, no. See, first off, these Christians, I'm putting quotations for those listening, audio, these Christians that claim it is somehow moral to hand off the responsibilities of your faith to the government because we as Christians believe we're here to help those in need, keyword in need, not lazy, not just lazy people, but people in need. But we as Christians believe we're here to help people in need and is out of our kindness and obedience to God that we give that. It is not our belief that government needs to step in and do it. Jesus said, give to the needy. He didn't say give to the needy. And if there's somebody still needing out there and y'all don't want to give to them, well, just turn to Caesar and have him start robbing everybody else's money and forcing them to give money to these needy people over here. Uh, because he says so. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, do it out of the kindness of your heart. And you're not doing out of the kindness of your heart. If you're wanting the government to force everybody else, including yourself to this compulsory charity. 
on top of that, this isn't a traditional charity because the reason why you being in control of how your dollars are spent to help people so good is because it creates a sense of accountability and you have control over how your dollars are spent. And this way we're talking about, do we want to help out people who just refuse to work? And the average person is going to say, no, I work very hard. Why would I give it away to somebody who just refuses to do the same? They just refuse to. It's not that they're sick. It's not that they're pregnant. It's not that they have kids necessarily. It is just simply that they don't want to work. Why would I work hard for them? Of course not. It's not moral or faith-driven. The moral and faith-driven thing to do is to take care of your infirm, your old, out of, out of the, the people who can't work, who are in need, of the kindness of your hearts, while looking at people who refuse to work, who can, and say, tough. You're not going to leech off of my hard work and labor. It's a good thing to put in place. But of course, Bashir's against it. At least this is a policy we can look at and say this is a difference between Cameron and Bashir. Though still, as I mentioned in the last segment, this isn't a very inspiring reason per se, but it is a good idea and it is good for our economy and it is good for Kentucky and it's good for those people too. There is honor and dignity in working and sitting there and leeching off the government and, and wasting away on government checks. There's no morality in that. There's no dignity in it. It's not dignified. Going out and working hard to provide for your family, that's where you find dignity. Well, guys, that's what we have time for today on the Andrew Cooper Writer Show. Thank you all so much for joining us. Have a great rest of your day.